Hi, this is Herb Kressel, and welcome to the December Radiology Podcast. Uh, this month, we have a uh, fascinating pair of articles as part of our Controversies uh, in Radiology series. And the controversy that we're discussing is the existence of and the risk of contrast-induced nephropathy. And joining us for the discussion are Drs. Ulf Nyman and Jonas Bjork. Dr. Nyman is Associate Professor of Radiology and Translational Medicine at Skane University Hospital in Sweden. And Dr. Jonas Bjork is a Professor of Epidemiology at Lund University. Welcome, Drs. Nyman and Bjork. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, in the U.S., uh, we have uh, Dr. Matthew Davenport, who is Assistant Professor of Radiology and Urology at the University of Michigan, and Dr. Robert McDonald, who is joining us by phone only. Dr. McDonald is a fellow in the Department of Radiology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, welcome, Drs. Davenport and McDonald. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, nice to have you uh, with us. And uh, just to sort of set the discussion, uh, our readers may recall uh, several years ago a uh, provocative article uh, authored by Dr. Jeff Newhouse that questioned the existence of contrast-induced nephropathy. And the core observation, as I remember it, that Dr. Newhouse made was that although we have kind of a, an entire literature about contrast-induced nephropathy, most of the studies uh, that drove uh, the uh, concept of this entity were not controlled retrospective studies. And in the absence of a control in inpatients who are sick and tend to have alterations in renal function while they're in the hospital, he questioned whether or not contrast-induced nephropathy uh, exists. And uh, uh, then a couple of years ago, uh, the group at uh, Mayo and at the University of Michigan, Drs. Uh, Davenport uh, and McDonald and your colleagues, uh, reported on very large retrospective propensity match cohorts of inpatients undergoing a CT with and without contrast. And both of these studies, which uh, certainly got a lot of attention in the radiology world, uh, showed that the risk of contrast-induced nephropathy using the newer uh, low-osmolar and iso-osmolar agents was lower than previously thought, and perhaps in the case of the Mayo study, uh, non-existent. Uh, and so that's the world as we knew it. And then uh, uh, Drs. Nyman, uh, Aspelin, and colleagues wrote uh, a very thought-provoking uh, essay, which we are publishing this month, and they sort of questioned uh, whether the conclusions based on the two studies may be overstated, and in fact that contrast-induced nephropathy is a real item, or certainly we haven't excluded it, and it's something that we ought to be concerned about. And they identified a number of key areas, and we'll be discussing them uh, individually. Uh, and the first area of concern was uh, the use of uh, relative versus absolute uh, glomerular filtration weight as a way of stratifying the patient population, and also in general the use of serum creatinine as the measure uh, of damage in these patients. Uh, Dr. Nyman, you want to comment on this? Uh, yes. In, briefly, we... Um, 
the rel relative GFR is generally used in all cardiology and in radiology papers when estimating GFR when you're doing contrast media examination. And fundamentally, this, this is wrong because what when you when you are evaluating toxicity of drugs that are excreted through the kidneys, then the, you should use the individual's GFR. These are called absolute GFR and not the one that is adjusted to a certain body surface area. Now, I, now in the counterpoint that uh, uh, Dr. Davenport McDonald did, we are not sure if they really, if they misunderstood a bit of what we were writing. Uh, because, and uh, what, what we want to make clear is that we didn't mean to use any measured absolute GFR. We meant to use estimated GFR. And when you're using MDRD or the Secodepi equation to estimate GFR, then you have to recalculate it into absolute values using body weight and height and a certain body surface equation. And, there is, and what we try to explain in the article is that if we have a certain relative GFR interval, for example, with, between 30 and 45, if you take those patients and calculate their absolute GFR, I mean, up to, up to one-third of the males will end up in a higher GFR interval, and about 10% of the women will end up in a lower GFR interval. So by using relative GFR, you sort of mix small women with poor renal function with large men with better renal function, which may dilute the results, so to say. So, so you're basically saying that the populations may have been somewhat skewed to, with individuals that were actually functioning at a higher level than the way the estimate was done. Uh, yeah. Dr. McDonald, you're sort of from a place with a lot of big, beefy guys do you want to respond to that concern? Uh, I'm, I'm from a place with what sort of guys? <laughs> Beefy guys. Guys. <laughs> um, well, you know, that's certainly um, – so here at Mayo, we still, although we'll probably eventually adopt an EGFR model, and we certainly calculate a, an estimated EGFR based upon the MDRD equation, and, and you know, obviously we can use whatever other equations we want um, – you know, we still sort of derive our uh, our estimates from uh, serum-creatinine measurements in terms of that's how, here how we're sort of risk-stratifying our patients for acute kidney injury following CT contrast administration. Um, and, and so our lab uses uh, uses the NIST standard, the uh, traceable to IDMS, isotope diluted uh, uh, mass spec. And so... I'd argue our, our, at least our serum creatinine results, even though we can certainly talk about how serum creatinine isn't the um, best biomarker in the world, at least we're using the most rigorous uh, example where the, the inter and intra-laboratory uh, variability uh, compared to another lab that uses IDMS is going to be very small. Um, but uh, going back to this idea of absolute, you know, absolute, I think what could happen there certainly um, if we looked at our data and compared to estimated to absolute, 
it, what, what might happen, um, even though our results didn't suggest there was any, I think it'll just blur the lines where that cutoff between when you look at uh, Dr. Davenport's paper, where that cutoff would be in terms of where there's an increased risk of, uh, of acute kidney injury. So, Dr. Davenport, do you think the difference in your studies might be due to the fact there are thinner people in Michigan? Um, having lived here for 10 years, I would say that's not possible. <laughs> um, but I think, I mean, I think they make a good point. I mean, their point is that there are better ways to accurately evaluate someone's GFR. And I actually have no problem with that. I think they're probably right. If you used individualized-based GFR, which was actually modeled based on the patient's individual weight and individual height, you probably would have a more accurate measure of renal function. They're probably right about that. The reason, why, the reason why we chose to use GF, GFR in our paper was because that's how risk stratification for this is basically always done. Right. So to be more clinically relevant, that's why we chose that number. Good. Thank you. That, that, I think that's very helpful. And uh, Dr. Nyman, I was also confused about what you meant about absolute. I thought you had to have people in a clinical research center to, uh, to calculate the absolute GFR. So that's very, very helpful. Now, the next thing was this issue of uh, uh, the use of the non-contrast-enhanced CT as the comparison group and how there are some maybe a misallocation of confounders as a result of that. Uh, Dr. Bjork, is that something you want to talk about? Uh, yes, I can do that. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a bit problematic from, from a methodological point of view that although you're using this propensity score of stratification, which I think is a very good technique, uh, still you might ask the question whether you can sufficiently account for the selection, for the differences between the control group and, and the treatment group. So, so our suggestion was really that, that you could do a propensity score matching within the CM group. Looking yeah. at different doses and and uh, match them against each other. Well, that, quite different approach. Yeah, I, I think that's a very interesting idea. But just my my own thought about that is uh, it obviously makes a lot of sense. But if we go back to where we started from, where we had this whole literature on this entity that was based on uncontrolled studies. Uh, only of patients who got ill. I mean, it. I just the 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 question that that I would have is sort of where does this kind of high level of concern derive from? The the core observations were at least as flawed as what we're dealing with now. We have much more uh, refinement. So uh, I, I don't know if you'd like to sort of respond to that. I think, I mean, it's not, I, from my perspective, it's not either or. I mean, you right. can really do, do both because, because, I mean, there is still this risk for, for a severe selection bias in the results. And one way of looking at that from, from a different angel was, was this suggestion, I, I would say. No, I, I, I think it's kind of, a, in my own mind, sort of this discussion is very, very helpful because it's kind of more the where do we go from here, uh, I think, uh, in doing the best for our patients. Dr. Davenport, do you have any thoughts about sort of the, the comparison group and uh, the problems of using the non-contrast-enhanced CT? Yeah, I mean, I actually share his concerns. When we, when we did this analysis, I thought to myself repeatedly throughout the process, is this good enough? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, at the time, this is now 2013. It feels like it's a long time ago. Like <laughs> none of the studies. You're a very young man. If you think that's a long time ago, <laughs> uh, at the time, you know, none of the studies were controlling for anything. And if they were using controls, they were simple retrospective controls with no adjustment of bias. And so, to appropriately select a group uh, that would be a suitable control, this seemed to us to be the best group at the time and then adjust for all the possible reasons renally that might predict whether someone would or would not get contrast. But when I read uh, your guys' paper suggesting to use dose within a group, that was a great idea, I thought. And I think that's a a great way to take this to the next level. Of course, at our hospital, everyone was getting the same dose. So we would be unable to do that analysis. Um, Maybe somebody else would would have the data available to do it. But at the time, we were not basing our dose uh, based on that. And of course, it would probably need to be in a prospective fashion because those people who are varying their dose oftentimes are doing it on the basis of somebody's weight and height, um, which brings in the other issues we discussed a moment ago. Good. Dr. McDonald, any further thoughts on this issue? Sure. So, no, I, I agree. Um, it is a, it's a great point I, on, on multiple levels. Uh, the first is, you know, is it fair to compare someone in the contrast exposed group who, who had a PE to someone in the contrast in the naive group who didn't get contrast because they have some other far less severe condition, but they have other comorbidities that the propensity score matches those patients up. Fortunately, when we actually drilled down to the data, it doesn't happen that often, but uh, but it does raise a good point. There is still room for some bias in that. Um, now, to sort of touch on the point in terms of uh, varying contrast dose. Our, our uh, practice here does use uh, a weight-based nomogram, so our dose does vary a, a bit with weight. Obviously, um, we try to basically shoot for relatively similar concentrations based on body weight in adults. Um, and we actually, although we didn't in our 2013 papers, because I, I think I, I share Dr. Davenport's sort of viewpoint, at that point we looked and we said, well, nobody's done anything yet, so this is a first start. Yeah, um, and, and also I think uh, it was, for us it was a lot of work just to get there, but, but subsequently we have published something that did make it into the journal radiology, but it's in Mayo Clinic proceedings where we did actually control for contrast dose in our models. And so I think, you know, it certainly is a concern, but I think what really our, hopefully I, I'd like to think the initial 2013 papers did is it put sort of some bookends on the on the problem. And from our, you know, from one end, our, our findings said, look, we, we can't identify contrast-induced nephropathy at all to Davenport's uh, and his colleagues' findings saying, it might exist, but it's really in a subset of patients who have compromised renal function. And I think uh, as the studies continue to come out, we're, we'll be able to refine the window of which, if the, if this entity exists, we'll, we'll, we'll have a narrow window to gauge what patients are at risk. But Dr. McDonald, what was the result? You're leaving us uh, hanging here when you... Uh, oh, uh, when you... I mean, it's a, we didn't find that that was a... It didn't seem to be an independent risk factor for... Mm-hmm. I apologize... Uh, for contrast nephropathy. But again, this is a narrow window of doses. It's not like anyone's getting triple or quadruple dose of contrast. All we're basically doing is keeping the intravascular concentration roughly similar between someone who weighs 50 kilograms and someone who weighs 150 kilograms, for example. Good. Now, the the next item of concern that was raised, uh, and I think this relates uh, to the McDonald study, was the limited attention to the results stratified on non-renal risk factors. Mm -hmm. Yes, I I could probably comment on that because I think 
one strength of the propensity score technique is that you can look at the, the subgroups. Uh, and for example, you can, you can look at uh, the group that has received contrast media despite the fact that the, the propensity score is saying that you, in a way, shouldn't because of the, the, the risk factors that you have at the individual level. And if you do that, if you look at that in, in the, the original um, publication by Mac, McDonald's and, and uh, co-workers, you can actually see that in the medium risk group, there is an elevation in this subgroup. And it's only a subgroup and it's only observation, but I think it's, it's still important to look at these data more carefully. Right. Dr. McDonald, you want to comment on that? Um, can we just back up? What were you seeing in our in our medium risk subgroup again? I, I'm sorry, I, I missed that part. Yeah, that was in your your supplementary material for the medium risk subgroup. You had stratum one, so that is the the group with the lowest propensity score, right? Yeah, and there was you had a clear elevation there in the, the sin risk. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Right. So one of the propensity score matching techniques we used was a stratification method, and we actually showed the strata within each. So it's sort of like stratification of the strata. So we stratified our patients into those risk groups based upon our sort of clinical experience of how we sort of mentally triaged patients. Uh, the low risk group were patients with creatinine less than 1.5, who we really didn't think were at great risk, although we didn't know. But those are the people we were least concerned about. The medium risk were between 1.5 and 2 in terms of a baseline serum creatinine, and the high risk was above the, it was anything above 2, and so those patients we, we were the most concerned with. And frankly, for this pa- for that 2013 paper, we were very interested in that medium risk group because that that comprises a large percentage of our patients. The high risk group patients, even though they seem very ominous, they're a very low fraction of patients you actually scan every day. And so I remember exactly what you're talking about that in the stratification. It doesn't clearly march uh, as you normally would expect it. I remember seeing that and being a little bewildered by it as well. As to why that is, I guess for that one thing, I, I guess I was more interested in being uh, intellectually honest and putting our results than, than trying to redo it. But when we subsequently reanalyzed those data again using like a bootstrapping model, and this ended up being in the supplement to the, the paper that looked at uh, of dialysis and mortality. So we did a bootstrapping model where we compared multiple different propensity scores matching method and we re- had the computer rerun the propensity score matching a hundred times for each of I believe the five different methods we had very similar results every time and we were able to sort of narrow our confidence interval you know I, I think the results overall still argue that at least from a statistical point of view we can't discern a uh, uh, an effect that you could call contrast-induced nephropathy based upon our data. But, no, I, I, I acknowledge exactly what you're talking about, that the stratification was not this clear ramp-up from the lowest to the highest risk based upon their propensity score. So uh, I, I know that uh, a lot of this discussion will seem very heavily in the weeds to a lot of people who are listening to this, but I must say I think it's important because – in the end, we have these very complex, multifactorial uh, situations, and we're trying to make decisions about giving an agent to people that will affect their lives potentially. So 
Uh, it's not trivial, and I think it, it highlights the importance of having good quality data and a good quality analysis, and that uh, I'm pleased to see that both doctors Davenport and McDonald, the, the, the questions aren't over, uh, that we're, we're trying to build from there. And I, I think that was really the point from doctors Nyman and Aspel and Bjork, uh, why you wrote that, that kind of we don't have the final answer. There are issues that remain to be explored. And uh, on the other hand, in the practical world of clinical radiology, people need to make decisions and, and practice. Uh, and I think one of the points of the Davenport and McDonald papers was that, you know, perhaps we're withholding contrast for pe- from people who wouldn't have adverse events uh, on the basis of it and who would you know, benefit from the added information available. So that brings me to sort of knowing what we know now, where are we? And Dr. Davenport, you've been involved, I think, with the ACR uh, Mm -hmm. committee that looking at at contrast guidelines, and perhaps you can tell us where we are, uh, what the guidelines are, and what the changes have been. Sure, I'd be happy to. So um, recently the chapter on contrast-induced acute kidney injury was rewritten, I think there are two major changes. One is definitional and one is based on the threshold. The definition difference now is that what was previously termed CIN, which is you get contrast and then 48 to 72 hours later you have a bump in your sacred and the old definition of CIN is no longer. That's now called post-contrast acute kidney injury. In other words, we're taking away the causative statement implicit within the name, and that's putting out post-contrast acute kidney injury. And CIN is now restricted to only that which can be to be directly causative from the contrast material, which of course is extremely difficult to disentangle on a per-patient basis and requires a randomized controlled trial or um, some kind of advanced uh, retrospective statistics. And the second change is, is uh, based on the threshold. And this, was, this caused a lot of controversy, frankly speaking, in that room as to what number should we put, if anything. There were some people who said we shouldn't even put a threshold down because we don't know yet. And you might imagine who that would have been, who, had, who made those comments. Um, and then there are other people who said, no, we need to guide people so they know what to do. And after a lot of discussion, uh, we decided that the um, level which has the most level of evidence in the literature based on controlled studies was a number of less than 30. And we make a bunch of statements about in there, which is the following. One, this pertains to IV media only. And uh, secondly, is that anything involves a risk-benefit decision. So it's, it's more complicated than just a simple number. Um, and I can go into a long-winded discussion about why we chose less than 30, but that's what we chose. Good. Uh, Dr. Nyman, how, how do things stand in Europe? Uh, has there been any changes? or? Uh, no, there's not, not been any changes. And we had a discussion in, in Sweden at the radiology meeting, and uh, there were people from the European Society of Urogenital Radiology taking part, too. And the general recommendation was to sit on, sit on your hands and wait and don't do any changes. And basically the guidelines we have in, in several countries and, and in the European societies, there is just one risk group is those below, with GFR below 45. And then you have the other patient group with multiple risk factors and basically with that, independent of what the GFR is. If you have a patient with cardiac decompensation, diabetes, and so on, unstable renal function, unstable hemodynamics, and so on, be careful. And, and, um, but 
So th these are the general guidelines. But then in clinical practice, from my personal point of view, I seldom see any problems because you can solve a problem in a lot of different ways. And what I use very frequently in these, these categories is doing ATK DCT and ramping up the MAS. The patients are pretty old generally. You don't have a concern about radiation. And you can all, basically half the contrast medium dose. Anytime you okay, need. So just reduce yeah. the dose if you're concerned. Sorry? The idea is using a lower dose and upping the MAS if you're sort of in that borderline zone. Exactly, so you don't get too much uh, noise in the images, but then you can almost half the contrast medium dose. Okay, and uh, going back to the U.S., uh, uh, Dr. Davenport, uh, what's happened to practice at the University of Michigan? Are you using the current ACR guidelines, or uh, are you doing something a little different? Mm -hmm. So we started using something very similar to the ACR guidelines prior to ACR's release of those guidelines. So what we use is if a patient has acute kidney injury or chronic kidney disease with EGFR less than 30, it triggers a provider-to-provider -provider conversation, and that's our guideline. So we have a discussion about what to do. Um, when the EGFR is higher than 30 or higher, then we don't have any specific uh, requirements. And uh, just experientially, uh, have you had these conversations? What's the usual outcome? Um, because our policy tends to be more liberal than what the referring services believe about the nephrotoxic potential of contrast, um, we have these conversations infrequently because there's not many people who are asking for this. And if they're asking for it, they know there's a risk probably too. And so it's, everyone, it's on everybody's radar. Um, Good. Uh, I've actually kind of uh, consulted with uh, uh, physicians uh, and sort of had this discussion, and, and we have kind of uh, just on limited numbers, but we have uh, uh, been a little bit more liberal about using it if, it, if it's really an, an indicated situation. Dr. McDonald, where are we at Mayo with this uh, issue? Right. So, you know, our, our um, internal use, we, we still – like I said, even though we calculate the EGFR, we still are um, using serum creatinine right now, but it's very similar. We have a similar uh, policy to the ACR into Michigan in that uh, below a creatinine of two, we uh, we feel it's safe to administer contrast based upon the results from our study and Michigan study. We thought that was the most conservative approach, and again, it, it aligns nicely with ACR's guideline because the uh, serum creatinine of two is relatively close to 30. I anticipate at some point we'll transition to EGFR-based measurements and adopt the 30 threshold. So yeah, I think... Um, and in terms of uh, phone calls, well, certainly we still get them because what our thoughts are in the department um, versus what uh, providers are, you know, think uh, is clearly where we certainly get phone calls where people are worried about giving contrast to someone with a serum creatinine of 1.4. Um, and so we certainly try to counsel them, but our policy here is to sort of ultimately the, the decision is, is with the ordering provider. So we'll try to provide, let them know what the best evidence is and, and let them make the best clinical decision from there. Well, thank you. I want to thank all the participants today. Uh, I think this has been a very enlightening discussion. Uh, I think people uh, perhaps will uh, have a better sense of the complexity and thought process that goes into kind of thinking about these guidelines. Also, from my perspective, the importance of good quality studies. Uh, you know, we, we kind of throw out, you know, 
what we need is a prospective randomized controlled trial. But with something like this, where the incidence is relatively low, it's very, very challenging to put these together. And quite frankly, in the environment that we're in, I don't know that we're going to be able to see this. Uh, and so we're stuck in a situation where we kind of lurch forward using the best information and processing what we have, and we just have to be aware of the limitations of that. So I want to thank you all for participating. Uh, thanks to our colleagues in Sweden for your contribution uh, in the uh, essay uh, and also uh, in the podcast, and thanks to Dr. Davenport and McDonald uh, once again. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Herb Kressel. Uh, this month, we have available uh, transcripts of the podcast discussions. Uh, we've learned that uh, many of our listeners and viewers may not uh, be that familiar with English as a, uh, as a language, and uh, we feel that the transcripts will be helpful in furthering their understanding of medical English. We hope you enjoy the podcast and we hope you enjoy the transcripts. Uh, please contact us uh, with any uh, suggestions for further improvement. Thank you. Thank you.